This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It's estimated that at least 12% of the U.S. population, or 20 million individuals, have some form of thyroid disorder. It's more common in women, and well over half of all patients with thyroid dysfunction don't know they have a problem. We certainly see hypothyroidism often, especially subclinical hypothyroidism, and thyroid nodules are also found quite frequently. What do we need to consider when we're contemplating thyroid replacement therapy in a patient? How long do we need to re-image thyroid nodules? And when should we refer a patient with a thyroid nodule for a fine needle aspirate? We'll discuss these questions and more with Dr. Regina Castro from the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Regina, welcome, and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Daryl, for the invitation. My pleasure. Well, let's start with hypothyroidism. We certainly see this quite often in the uh, outpatient practice. What's the most common cause of hypothyroidism? So by far, the most common cause of hypothyroidism in somebody who has not had, say, thyroid surgery to remove part of it for whatever reason is a condition known as Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is basically a benign autoimmune condition in which the body, for reasons that we don't quite understand, makes antibodies that are directed against specific proteins in the thyroid gland. And by doing so, it leads to chronic inflammation and over time, what we would call a sluggish or underactive thyroid. So leading to hypothyroidism. Okay. I think in many clinical settings, we often do thyroid function tests to kind of screen for thyroid problems and sensitive TSH is often ordered. Are there other tests that we should do to document hypothyroidism or is a sensitive TSH enough? So a sensitive TSH is a very good screening test and it's a good test to start. For the average patient, a TSH might be sufficient, but generally speaking, to make a diagnosis, you should have both a TSH and a free T4. In the vast majority of patients, a TSH may be sufficient, but there might be a small subset of patients who may have pituitary disease, for example, in whom the TSH may not be as reliable. So if a patient is, the status is unknown, the best way to make a diagnosis is to have the combination of both the TSH and the free T4. Okay. One of the most common situations we run into is a patient who is asymptomatic and has a slightly elevated sensitive TSH, so therefore subclinical hypothyroidism, and we have to decide when do we start them on thyroid supplement therapy? How do we decide that? So a lot of factors come into play. I like to look at the patient record. If we have it available, sometimes we might see that the elevation is very, very subtle, And looking back at the record, this is the very first time that that shows up. If it's very, very subtle, most of the time I will tend to observe and just have the the thyroid test repeated after a few weeks or a couple months. Depends also on how significant this elevation is. Generally speaking, for TSH that is mildly elevated, say between 5 and 10, that's a gray zone where there's a lot of disagreement even between the experts or among the experts as to who should be treated and who shouldn't. Generally speaking, if you have an older patient, you know, we tend to be more cautious and err on the side of rechecking and repeating because as we get older, the upper limit of normal for TSH shifts to the right, meaning 
it's not uncommon and it's actually normal for a patient who may be in their late 70s or 80s to have a TSH of seven, which would be a perfectly normal TSH for that older patient. If it's a much younger patient, and particularly, for example, somebody, a woman, let's say, who's trying to get pregnant, who may have a mildly elevated TSH, I may consider more seriously whether to stat that person on thyroid hormone. Other factors that may help me determine whether I should or shouldn't start the patient on thyroid medication may be whether or not this patient has elevated TPO antibodies. Patients who have an elevated TSH, maybe moderately so, six, seven, but have very markedly positive TPO antibodies, we know they have autoimmune thyroid disease. And in my view, for many of these patients, it's they're very likely to progress to overt hypothyroidism. So I'm more inclined to start those patients on levothyroxine therapy earlier, sooner rather than later, rather than waiting until the TSH is above 10. Mm -hmm. so there are a lot of factors, age, desiring for pregnancy, for example, and whether or not the other thing that is very important, whether or not the patient has any symptoms and whether or not the patient wants to take an additional medication. Because for some patients who have mildly elevated TSH, if they're totally asymptomatic and particularly they don't care to take another medication, I'm more keen to just watch this patient and recheck this, you know, the, the tests in a few months. Yeah. Well, as you know, the, the symptoms of hypothyroidism are so vague. I mean, you ask patients, are you tired? Oh, sure, doc, I'm tired. Are you cold? Oh yeah, I'm cold all the time. Well, you live in Minnesota, you know, you're going to be cold for 11 months of the year. So it's, you know, hard to find symptoms that really relate to hypothyroidism. And that's, that could be challenging. How about the patient who has mild to moderate hyperlipidemia, but not enough to be on a statin and they are in that gray zone? Would that push you more towards treatment or doesn't that have any effect on it? You know, hyperlipidemia can happen for so many reasons. If I have a patient that is on the edge, I may have that discussion. But at the end of the day, if it's only mild hyperlipidemia and you're considering a statin, you probably want to treat a patient who's hypothyroid before you start a statin because... Mm -hmm hypothyroid and you start a patient on statin, and that's probably not just the very subtle uh, subclinical hypothyroidism, but if, but if you have somebody with hypothyroidism who may or may not be very symptomatic and you start them on a statin, the likelihood that they might get symptoms of muscle aches or pains is higher when you're hypothyroid. So in those patients, I may consider treating with thyroid hormone, but it may not be the only factor in, in place. Okay. But I symptoms are very nonspecific and it's, it's one of the toughest situations that we encounter in everyday practice. Right. All right. So let's say we have diagnosed hypothyroidism and we decide to start treatment. How do we do that? How do we start dosing a thyroid supplement? So a lot of it depends on the patient's age. So if you have a young, otherwise healthy individual who has a TSH of say 15, clearly elevated and it, it's not mild hypothyroidism, Usually you can figure out starting with a full replacement dose if you want to, uh, you know, figure out based on weight how much they would require. I tend to be a little bit more conservative and start a little bit lower than what would be a full replacement dose to avoid symptoms of hyperthyroidism. But you could do that in a young person. However, if you have an older person, a, an older individual, say in their late 70s or people who may have other conditions other comorbidities, I tend to be more cautious and start them on a much lower dose and gradually increase the dose, you know, every few weeks until you get to the target dose that you want to have the patient on. Okay. Do you need to use more caution in somebody who has documented coronary disease or isn't that a factor? 
yes, you do. If you have somebody who has coronary artery disease, you want to be cautious and you want to start them on a lower dose and then gradually increase the dose slowly. If you start somebody who has coronary artery disease on a higher full replacement dose, you may precipitate angina, you know, symptoms of, because you're increasing the metabolism, you're increasing the heart rate. So you could put that patient at risk of developing symptoms of angina, which, uh, you know, could be avoided if you start uh, slowly. Mm -hmm. So how do we determine that we're giving the correct dose? When do we recheck the first time and what do we use to recheck? So that's a very good point. When you've already made the decision to start somebody on thyroid hormone supplementation, you need to wait at least six to eight weeks after you start a given dose before you recheck thyroid function test. Why? Because it takes about six to eight weeks for thyroid hormone levels to reach steady state. And so you don't want to check when the, the levels are still changing. You want to check when they're on steady state. And that's six to eight weeks later. Now, once you start thyroid hormone treatment, you don't need to get a TSH and a free T4. The only thing you need to determine whether the patient is on the correct dose is to get a TSH. And what is the correct dose? First of all, you want to get the patient's TSH values within the reference range. Depending on the age of the patient, if it's an older patient, I may aim for the upper uh, half of the normal range. If it's a younger patient, I may aim for the lower half of the normal range. But generally speaking, you want to make sure that you get the TSH levels within the reference range. Okay. I think about a decade or so ago, I recall we were told to use a branded thyroid supplement versus generic. Is there any basis of fact behind that? Well, it is very interesting because, yes, I totally agree with you. Even our current guidelines of the ATA had said that, it, that you know, for many patients who wanted real stability, using a brand name was better. But there was a recent study published actually by one of our colleagues here at Mayo that looked at a very, very large cohort of patients and database for many years that basically showed that you know, on those people who were on generic preparations, who were switched to a different generic preparations, there was very little change in the values of TSH. So I think even though it hasn't happened yet, that those guidelines may be revised on the basis of this recent study. Generally speaking, generic preparations tend to be a lot cheaper. And for some medication that somebody's going to be on for the rest of our life, it can be a significant cost savings over, over the many years. For patients who prefer a brand name, I have no problem giving them the brand name, but they have to be aware that they're going to pay more for the medication. Right. Generic preparations are pretty acceptable. On occasion, I will come across a patient who is taking desiccated thyroid hormone. Should we switch them off this or they're doing well, does it matter? A lot of it depends on how they're doing. If I have a patient who comes in who has been prescribed by their local provider a desiccated thyroid extract such as Armour Thyroid or there are many others in the market, if they're feeling well and their thyroid levels are within reference range, they can stay on that preparation. It is not what is recommended, generally speaking, and, and there are reasons for that. But it's very common that patients who are on many of these desiccated thyroid extracts will come in and they present with thyroid function tests that are abnormal. And part of the reason for that is because these preparations usually contain a significantly higher amount of T3 than is normally produced by human thyroid. As you know, these preparations are made from desiccated extracts from pigs' thyroids. And of course, the composition, even though they contain T3 and T4, as we humans do, the proportion is not the same. And there's much more T3, which often leads to 
the abnormalities in the thyroid function test with suppressed TSH, free T4 levels that tend to be low, and T3 levels that may be normal or high, depending on, you know, when you test a patient. So I don't necessarily fight it on every patient. I don't prescribe it, but if they're coming and they're on the preparation and they're doing well, then the thyroid function tests are entirely normal. I find that it's fine for them to stay on it. Okay. Well, let's turn to hyperthyroidism. We certainly don't see that nearly as often, but what symptoms should make us think a patient may have hyperthyroidism? So yeah, there are a variety of symptoms that should make you think of it. Typically, a patient will present with unexplained weight loss. They're losing weight, even though they're, they have a very good appetite and they may be eating more and, and hungry all the time. Another very common complaint is rapid heartbeat, rapid or irregular heartbeat palpitations, pounding of the heart. They may notice that they have a heat intolerance and they're sweating a lot. They are often nervous and they may have tremor, shakiness. If it's a woman, she may present with irregular menstrual periods. Often they will notice also changes in the bowels, uh, in the bowel habits with increased frequency of bowel movements, sometimes muscle weakness, difficulty sleeping, either falling asleep or staying asleep, thinning of the hair and skin. You know, some of these findings are very, very nonspecific. And you can see some of these fatigue, for example, also in hypothyroidism. But generally speaking, when you see that constellation of hyperactivity in many different areas, you have to think of hyperthyroidism. I recall seeing maybe a couple patients in my career who had new onset of atrial fibrillation who had associated hyperthyroidism. So I always check for that. I haven't found it lately, but I think that's another condition. So what tests do we order? When we think we have a patient with hyperthyroidism, what do we need to check? So generally speaking, in a patient with hyperthyroidism, I tend to order a TSH, a free T4, and a total T3, mm -hmm. as opposed to patients with hypothyroidism, in which I would not necessarily check a T3. But in patients with hyperthyroidism, a T3 is important because many of these patients may have T4 levels that may be normal or upper limit of normals, but they may have T3 toxicosis. So all three tests are important. And if the test confirmed that you have a patient with hyperthyroidism, the next step is to check thyroid antibodies, specifically thyrotropin receptor antibodies, and in some laboratories, TSI, which is thyroid stimulating immunoglobulin. I generally order the trap first because it's cheaper, it's faster. They usually, the turnaround time is just hours versus the TSI that may take days. But generally speaking, those would be the tests that I would order in, in a patient in whom I suspect hyperthyroidism. Okay. What are the most common causes of hyperthyroidism? Well, it depends on the age and the situation, but I would say that probably the most common cause, generally speaking, of hyperthyroidism is a condition called Graves' disease, which is similar to Hashimoto's, another autoimmune condition in which the body makes these antibodies called the thyrotropic receptor antibodies that bind to receptors of the thyroid hormone in the thyroid gland, causing it, stimulating it to constantly be producing thyroid hormones. So patients develop hyperthyroidism. That's probably the majority of the patients, but there are many other causes of hyperthyroidism. As we get older, another cause that probably becomes more common, especially in older people, is a condition called uh, toxic nodular goiter. Patients may develop nodules, and over time, these nodules can grow and start producing too much thyroid hormone, and the patient develop hyperthyroidism. That's probably contrary to younger women or younger people, older people, you have to think of toxic nodule goiter. But there is another situation or the other thing you have to think of is patients who may have an episode of thyroiditis. And in many patients, 
they will present with a recent history of having had, for example, an upper respiratory infection. They had COVID or they had a flu or a sinus infection. And within a matter of you know, a week or two or a couple of weeks, they develop pain in the thyroid, pain in the anterior neck. And oftentimes they will present with symptoms of hyperthyroidism. So when you see them, if you look at their thyroid test, the thyroid test will show evidence of hyperthyroidism. Contrary to Graves' disease, patients with subacute thyroiditis, that's usually a self-limited process that will resolve if you give it time. So in those patients, mostly you treat the symptoms, you may give them beta blockers to get the symptoms under control, but over time, most of these patients' thyroid function returns to normal without needing specific treatment. Okay. You've mentioned Graves' disease a few times, and that condition has an associated ophthalmopathy, which can occur. How common is that? How many patients with Graves have the associated eye disease? If we talk about any level of eye disease, you tend to see some signs of eye disease in probably 20% of patients, but those are very mild and, and some of the symptoms or the signs might be very nonspecific. More severe thyroid eye disease is probably present in, I would say, about 10% of patients. In some patients, it's pretty obvious, and everybody can think of always, uh, you know, they think of the, people, of the patient who has proptosis, bulging eyes, you know, a lot of inflammation, a lot of redness. The more advanced or more severe thyroid eye disease is less common, but, you know, you can see it in, say, 10% of people with, with Graves' disease. Okay. I've lately seen some commercials on TV for this medication for patients with thyroid eye disease. Is that a new treatment option we have? Up until, say, three years ago or so, there weren't very many good treatment options for patients with advanced thyroid eye disease. There were some general topical measures, and in patients who had advanced, say, proptosis or you know, more severe eye disease, they may require surgery. And there were some other infusions and treatments that were available, but not as effective. In about 2020, a new medication called tepertumumab was approved. You, know, you might have heard the announcement, mm-hmm. HESA, which is the commercial name of that medication, And that has been very effective in many patients with more severe, more advanced thyroid eye disease in reducing proptosis and inflammation. Even though it is available and is FDA approved, it is not as widely used simply because it is very expensive. And so it tends to be restricted to patients who have more severe eye disease, more severe inflammation. You know, and in many cases, you can avoid a patient going to surgery with this medication, but it's very costly and not widely available. Okay. And finally, treatment options. I think most often uh, an endocrinologist would make this decision about when to treat patients with hyperthyroidism, but what are the treatment options you have? So I would argue that when I was in training a couple decades ago, the most common way of treating patients with hyperthyroidism, Graves' disease, was the use of radioactive iodine. Over the last couple of decades, there has been a significant change in the way we treat patients with hyperthyroidism with antithyroid drugs nowadays being the most common treatment option for Graves' disease or hyperthyroidism. If you have a patient with Graves' disease, usually there are three treatment modalities. One includes the antithyroid medications. The patient takes a pill every day for sometimes a couple of years, sometimes maybe much longer, years or indefinitely. Another option is still the use of radioactive iodine, but it's not being used as frequently as it used to be. But the third option for some patients, particularly those with large goiters, 
you know, severe symptoms, very, very high levels of thyrotropin receptor antibodies might be uh, surgery, maybe the preferred treatment option, but there are available options. And it's important to discuss with the patient, what are the options and, and, you know, what can you expect from each one? Of course, when you go into surgery or radioactive iodine, those are called definitive therapies because basically the purpose of those treatments is to eliminate or destroy the thyroid gland. And that means moving forward, the patient is going to need to take thyroid hormone for life. Okay. Uh, so, so, the, so that's something that needs to be discussed with the patient. Okay. And then finally, let's turn to thyroid nodules. Uh, these things seem to be so common. And I have a feeling that most are found kind of uh, incidentally, like a carotid ultrasound. We often get a report, well, there's a couple of thyroid nodules. Do we have any idea how common thyroid nodules are? Yes, uh, and you are right. I mean, thyroid nodules are very, very common. How frequently you find them depends on how you're looking for them. If we're looking at a physical exam, which is the least sensitive method to detect thyroid nodules, you may find them in about 5% of patients. The most common ways of finding thyroid nodules is incidentally, I would say more than 50% of the patients, probably far more than 50% of the patients who show up in our clinic, thyroid nodule clinic, have nodules that have been discovered incidentally. They got a carotid ultrasound, they got a CT chest, they got a CT neck for totally unrelated reasons. And they mentioned, oh, by the way, there's a nodule or there are multiple nodules in your thyroid. And so that leads to an evaluation and finding. How common are they? We know that if we think of ultrasound, if we were to do an ultrasound and everybody walking in, say, through the Mall of America, do an ultrasound for free screening to anybody over the age of 50, we'd find that about 60% of people have nodules in the thyroid. And the prevalence probably increases more as you get older. Mm -hmm. So very common, most of them not cancerous, but it is a very, very common finding. Most are not cancerous. Any idea the percentage? So we know that between 90 and 95% of all the nodules that we find in the thyroid are benign you know, we could say between five and 10% could be malignant, but considering how many we find, it's relatively small proportion. Okay. All right. So let's say we find one either by palpation or by ultrasound. What test should we do? So generally speaking, the very first test you do in a patient who has a thyroid nodule should be a, a measurement of a TSH. Why? Because the vast majority of patients with thyroid nodules are going to have a normal TSH. But there is the occasional patient who has a thyroid nodule who may have a suppressed DSH, indicating that the patient's hyperthyroid. In those patients, we want to know, does this patient have a condition like Graves' disease and happens to have a nodule, or is the nodule the cause of the hyperthyroidism? And in those patients, if you do find a suppressed DSH and a nodule that is either palpable or that you've discovered in ultrasound, and usually these are not tiny little sub-centimeter nodules, but moderate-sized nodules, you may want to do the next step would be a thyroid uptake and scan because you want to image uh, the thyroid and try to figure out if the nodule that you're seeing is what we call a hot nodule or a hyperfunctioning nodule, or if it is a cold nodule or a hypofunctioning nodule, because what you do next depends on what you find there. If you find a hyperfunctioning nodule, then you go straight to treatment, whether it's surgery, radiofrequency ablation, radioactive iodine. If, on the other hand, the nodule is cold or hypofunctioning, your next step would be, besides the ultrasound, which of course, you know, is going to help you define the nodule, would be to proceed with a, with a biopsy, with a fine needle aspiration. So that is the test that's often done in thyroid nodules. What really goes into a decision about who needs a fine needle aspirate? 
So I would argue that the most helpful test to help you determine whether a patient needs a biopsy is the ultrasound. The ultrasound nowadays with a high resolution can give you a ton of information. It is excellent tool to help you identify not only the size and the number of nodules that you have, but also the clinical features. There are certain features when you see a thyroid nodule that make it either very likely to be benign or more likely to be malignant. And so the sonographic features, if the, these, these features look suspicious or highly suspicious, you want to do a biopsy. On the other hand, nodules that look entirely benign, you generally wouldn't do a biopsy unless the nodule is relatively large. And finally, which nodules need to be followed? Based on size, uh, if you have a negative fine needle aspirate, do they need following? What goes into your decision about recommending follow-up? So generally, if you have a small nodule that you have not done a biopsy because it is below the threshold that you would use for a biopsy, but it's, say, intermediate or indeterminate, you want to follow that nodule and at the very least get an ultrasound within one to two years to see if the nodule is changing or if it's growing, because it may be that it doesn't meet criteria for biopsy now, but a year or two, it will have grown and then you have to do a biopsy. Nodules that you have done a biopsy and the biopsy has shown the nodule to be benign, Generally, we recommend, especially if it's the first time that you find that nodule, right? You recommend that the patient have a follow ultrasound typically within a year because what we're looking for is, is this nodule growing? And if so, how fast? Many nodules will grow very, very slowly over many years. And those patients don't necessarily need to have an ultrasound year after year. So usually we do an ultrasound follow-up a year from the first time and biopsy, and maybe another one three to five years later, if negative. And if, if everything is benign and the nodule is not changing or growing much, then you can stop at that point. If there is significant growth, and we say more than 50% increase in volume, sometimes we consider rebiopsying to make sure that there wasn't a sampling error the first time around. You know, it is generally understood that a benign nodule typically will not become cancerous, but the very few uh, false negative may often come from sampling errors and so on. And so that's why we don't necessarily forget about them, especially if there's any concern. We've been discussing thyroid disorders with Dr. Regina Castro, an endocrinologist from the Mayo Clinic. Regina, you've given us some really good practical information on this. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you, Daryl, for the invitation. It's my pleasure. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.